Thank you, men, for that. <coughs> excuse me, that ministry in uh, in music. Uh, Jim Bechtel, would you mind getting me a cup of water, please? I would appreciate that. We are uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, and we have noted that Jesus had been teaching on the blessedness of being a part of his kingdom. He went on to tell the disciples that they were to be salt and light in the earth. They were to be an instrument of righteousness. They were to live righteously and thus preserve the world in which they lived, and they were to provide instruction and thus be light in the world in which they lived. Jesus went on to talk about righteousness, and uh, he refuted the Pharisees who came and said that he had come to abolish the law. Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill the law. And then Jesus said something that was very startling. He said to the disciples that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. That was shocking because the disciples viewed the Pharisees as being extremely righteous, both in their practice and their teaching. But Jesus demonstrated that they fell short. Jesus then goes on to provide six examples of how the Pharisees fell short in both their teaching and practice concerning righteousness. Two of those areas we have already looked at, uh, one was uh, anger, which he equates with murder, and the second was, uh, thank you, Jim, on the teaching concerning um, Adultery, and saying that if a man even looks at a woman, he has committed adultery in his art. Jesus emphasized not just the action, but the heart. In the first two statements, he really emphasizes the heart. Starting with today, he speaks more about the actions, but the actions still represent the heart as well. If you look with me at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks concerning divorce. And he is going to teach that divorce is tantamount to committing adultery. Look with me at Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And it was said, whosoever sends his wife away Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As I said, the Pharisees' teaching and practice of righteousness did not go far enough. And in these examples, Jesus is demonstrating that the Pharisees did not go far enough even in their understanding of adultery. The position of the Pharisees is that if a man sends away his wife, that if he throws her out and wants nothing more to do with her, he is to provide her with a certificate of divorce. That is, a paper that proves 
that he frees her from all marital responsibilities and thus frees her to marry again. Jesus taught that such a paper does not free the husband from his marital obligations as seen in the word that he causes her to commit adultery. So what I want to focus on this morning is this. How does sending a woman away for any cause other than committing adultery cause her to commit adultery? And why should her initial husband be blamed along with her subsequent husband? Why would Jesus say that the man who marries her has committed adultery also? To see what Jesus is driving at, one must understand the scribes and Pharisees' interpretation of the laws concerning adultery, marriage, and divorce. We do not live in Old Testament times. And we aren't up, if you will, on Old Testament laws. And we certainly aren't up on the way in which the Pharisees interpreted these laws. Uh, We tend to look at marriage, divorce, and so on from the culture in which we live, the societal norms that we experience, and the laws of our own land. And they are quite different. So we really need to understand the history. We need to understand what the Pharisees taught, and then what Jesus taught in response and in correction of what the Pharisees taught. The first thing we need to understand is that there was a tremendous double standard when the Pharisees taught against adultery and in their instruction concerning marriage and divorce. The Pharisees had established a double standard. Let me illustrate that for you by turning to John chapter 8. If you would turn there, please. John chapter 8. The Pharisees had a double standard for adultery. That is, uh, one standard for women and another standard for men. In John chapter 8, verse 2, It says, And early in the morning, he, that is Jesus, came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Now notice that it's the scribes and the Pharisees who are the key players in this passage. John 8, 3. And the scribes and the the Pharisees brought a woman. So it's the scribes and the Pharisees who are the key players. It is the scribes and the Pharisees, that Jesus said that the disciples had to have a greater righteousness then. So these scribes and Pharisees, they bring a woman to Jesus who had been caught in the act of adultery. Notice verse 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. So they came upon her Uh, at the very time that she's committing adultery. The scribes and Pharisees pose a question to Jesus based on the law. Verse 4. They said to him, Teacher, 
This woman has been caught in adultery. In the very act. In other words, there's no question. It's an open and closed case. There had to be two witnesses. They've got them. All of the qualifications have been met to be able to ascribe guilt and blame. Open and closed case. She's caught in the very act. Verse 5. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? So they said that Moses commanded in the law that women like this should be stoned. They misquoted the law. The law actually said, Leviticus 20, verse 10, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It wasn't the women should be put to death. It was the adulterer and the adulteress should be put to death. Where was the man that she had been caught in the act with? Why wasn't he standing there? It's just to illustrate that that had become the norm in Jewish society. That men were literally getting away with murder or literally getting away with adultery and the wives or the women were being held accountable. I'd next like you to see that the motivation for the scribes and Pharisees in bringing this woman and asking the question was not out of a desire for righteousness or a desire for purity. Notice verse 6. And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. So they weren't really concerned about this woman, and they weren't really concerned about adultery, and they weren't really concerned about righteousness. They wanted to ensnare Jesus. And that's what infuriated him about the scribes and the Pharisees. They put on this pretense of being concerned about righteousness, when in reality they weren't concerned about righteousness at all. And that extends not only from their seeking to ensnare Jesus, but right down to the way in which they interpret the law. There's so much more I can say about John chapter 8, but my only point there is to demonstrate that there's this double standard that the scribes had uh, put forth. Secondly, the double standard for men and women carried over to the Pharisees' interpretation of the law in both regards to marriage and divorce. So this double standard is carried over to marriage. In the Old Testament, there were laws that were established to protect women. These laws even extended to polygamous marriages. Now, I don't have time to go into polygamy in the Old Testament, but polygamy is not actually uh, sanctioned by God. Uh, It enters with Lamech in uh, Genesis. He's not from the godly line. 
It's not an institution that God looks favorably upon. But even in that scenario, God established laws to protect women even in polygamous marriages. Let me give you two examples. First, the children of the wives were guarded by the law. Deuteronomy 21.15. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and that often happened in these polygamous marriages, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he wills what he has to his sons, he cannot make the son of the unloved the firstborn before the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength, to him belongs the right of the firstborn. So a man could not set aside. If his first wife was the unloved wife, he couldn't set aside the rights of the firstborn. Guarding the rights of the unloved wife. Secondly, and this is what is most pertinent for our understanding of this passage, the law protected the wife herself. Even a wife who had been formerly a slave. So even women that had been formerly a slave if they were married, they had rights under the Old Testament law, even though formerly they were a slave. The husband must be fully committed to all his wives in the fullest sense of that word. Listen to this statement. It comes from the book of Exodus chapter 21, verse 10. If that's the man, takes to himself another woman. He may not, three things. Number one, reduce her food. Number two, her clothing. And number three, or her conjugal rights. So if he takes another wife, he can't diminish the food, the clothing, or his sexual duty to his other wife. He must continue to provide and care for her in all areas. What happened if he failed to obey the law? What happened if he neglected one of his wives? in providing for her, either sexually or food or clothing. The law also provided a recourse for women. She is to be set free, and even if she was formerly a slave, she doesn't have to buy her freedom. Exodus 21.11. If he does not provide for her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. So, if 
he abdicates his responsibility. She then is set free, meaning that she is free to remarry. And, and she doesn't have to pay her husband any money because he's at fault. He should have been providing for her. This, even for a woman who had been formerly a slave. Now, what happens over a period of time? After the Babylonian captivity, when the children of Israel came back to the land of uh, Judah, after they came back to Jerusalem, after they came back to the promised land, polygamy really started to decline in society. Fewer and fewer people were involved in polygamous marriages. But the reason for that was primarily economical. It was tough to uh, support a number of wives, especially as they were going through persecution and distress and difficulty and so on. And so polygamy started passing out of style. But what happened was that polygamy was replaced with almost a serial polygamy. And what I mean by that is a man would marry, and then if he got tired of that wife for whatever reason, then he would divorce her and then marry again. And then, for whatever reason, he would divorce her and marry again. And he would divorce her and marry again. And what happened was that they took this provision that was intended to be a recourse and a safety net for a woman that said if a man failed to provide for her, then she shall be set free, and then she would be free to remarry. They turn that on its head, and use that as an escape clause for men. So if they didn't want to provide food or shelter or the sexual rights to this woman, they simply divorced her and set her free, saying the law gives us that privilege, the law gives us that prerogative. That became a large source of debate by the New Testament era. It became a matter of squabbling among the Pharisees as to whether or not a man was free to divorce his wife for any old reason he wanted, or was it limited to unchastity, was it limited to adultery or some kind of uh, sexual promiscuity? In Matthew chapter 19, you don't need to turn there, but we have divorce addressed again. And some Pharisees came to him, that is Jesus, testing him, again, not wanting to know the right answer, just trying to get Jesus into trouble. 
And they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? NIV translates this, and I think clearly. Some Pharisees came to him to test Jesus. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to make a proclamation. As I said, this question was hotly debated among the Pharisees, and there were two schools of thought. They were the Hillelites, H-I-L-L-E-L-I-T-S, and they maintained that a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. The Shemaiites said that a man could divorce his wife only on the basis of adultery. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does not simply side with the Shemites. All right? Hillites are out. This idea you can divorce a woman for any cause, no way. But now, Jesus takes the position of the, uh, excuse me, the Hillites were the ones that said, oh, you can do whatever you want. He doesn't just take the position of the Shemites, he goes them a couple steps further. First, verse 32, but I say to you, so now he is contrasting the teaching of the Pharisees with what he teaches. And he takes us a step further. But I say unto you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Makes her commit adultery. And the focus is on the husband. If you put her away for any reason other than sexual promiscuity, you have caused her to commit adultery. Now we might say, now how does that cause a woman to commit adultery? In that culture, in that society, in that time, the really only way for a woman to provide for herself was to be married. To be married. And if this man refused to provide for her, by divorcing her, he was, in essence, making her remarry, and thus he was committing adultery. And still further, and still mind-boggling in that culture and in that society, Jesus takes it a step further. Look at verse 32. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And now this, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So now he even holds the man who marries this divorced woman accountable and says that he committed adultery as well. I can't tell you how unfathomable that was in the New Testament culture and time. 
For Jesus completely eradicates the double standard. I suppose the most difficult thought in this double standard, eradicating it, is why would the second husband, why would the man who looks pity looks with pity upon a woman who has been divorced and provides for her, welcomes her, and meets her needs in clothing and in food and shelter and in uh, providing for her sexual needs, why would he be blamed? It would seem like that would be a good thing. Well, we find out that Jesus is not merely providing for one wife, but rather he is providing for all women, in fact. Jesus is not concerned only with one particular situation. Jesus is concerned with the institution of marriage. He's concerned with the hard heart that has started this whole thing. What we need to understand is that Jesus is moving us into a whole new direction. But in application for this first section, the first thing I would want to point out to you as as ladies is that if anybody tells you that Christianity makes you second-class citizens, you need to listen to the rest of this message. Because Jesus provides women with a standing that was totally alien to their culture, totally alien to the Old Testament, and quite frankly is alien to the other religions even to this very day. Jesus provided for women and gave women rights in marriage that were unheard of in their culture and in their day. And that is true right down to this very day. However, there is still more going on than Jesus removing the double standard in which the law was being interpreted. I don't want to get hung up on the legitimacy or illegitimacy of a divorce this morning. Because that's not really what this passage is about. Jesus is intending to take this a whole step further. And we can get just like the Pharisees and start arguing about uh, aspects of the law and fail to recognize the bigger and weightier issues. And it's the bigger and weightier issues that Jesus is addressing. Jesus' point is to raise the bar on marital faithfulness. Jesus extends marital faithfulness beyond sexual faithfulness and sexual faithfulness even beyond the act. Last week, we saw that he extended adultery to even looking upon a woman to lust after her. He said, you have committed adultery in your heart. Now, he says... If you've divorced 
a woman for any reason other than adultery, you've committed adultery. What Jesus does is not lower the bar, he raises the bar. When everybody else said, whoa, adultery is a bad thing, but everything else is excusable, Jesus says, nothing is excusable. What I require from you is faithfulness in all areas. Now, let me unpack that for you. First, I am sure that most of you are familiar with the imagery of the scripture that refers to Israel as the wife of God and the church as the bride of Christ. Now, the Old Testament takes that imagery and applies it to Israel when they are unfaithful to God, when they, in fact, go after other gods, when they worship other gods, when they fail to serve him as they should, and Jesus, excuse me, and God repeatedly refers to that by his prophets as spiritual adultery. He says, you have committed adultery with me. Certainly the most powerful example of that is the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, it says this, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So Jesus says to Hosea, Marry a woman who has committed adultery. And she is going to commit adultery with you as an illustration of what Israel has done to me. What Israel had done to God was not sexual in nature. What Israel had done was failing to submit to the authority of God, of having other gods before God, of not being faithful to God. So even the Old Testament speaks in terms of unfaithfulness. What the scribes and Pharisees did was limit unfaithfulness to this one small portion of marriage. What Jesus does is expand unfaithfulness to the whole of marriage. And you can be unfaithful to your spouse in many many ways. The scripture describes a covenant that God entered into with his people. A marital covenant, if you will, so that Israel is the wife of God The uh, church is the bride of Christ. A covenant in which they were to love their God and be servient to him. A covenant in which he would love his people and care for them. It was an exclusive covenant. Let me just point out to you that the heritage of our Christian faith Many times you can still see remnants in our law today. 
And one of the ways in which you see the permanence of marriage and this aspect of provision for one's wife as not being able to be abdicated by divorce, which Jesus taught, that you can't just give her a certificate and send her away. That's unacceptable. Right down to this very day, even a person who is divorced legally in our society, our society says, but that doesn't end responsibilities for the children or for the wife. And so we have alimony and we have child support as part of our understanding of responsibilities within marriage that cannot be ended by a certificate of divorce. That comes down from our Christian heritage of what Jesus taught. The Pharisees thought that they had really raised the bar, especially those who taught the woman could only remarry due to adultery. Jesus actually raised the bar in another way. But let me now bring this up to date and some issues of application. First, Jesus is not creating a new double standard where men are held to a higher degree of accountability than women. I hear that in some circles. And men will say that they have a higher moral responsibility in the marriage than women do. No, that's just a new double standard. That's just a a new way of looking at the law that is equally as wrong. Men and women are equally accountable before God. Equally accountable before God. Jesus now said that marital faithfulness needs to go beyond the sexual realm. We need to understand that intimacy, intimacy is more than just sexual in nature. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, a very curious verse if you think about it. Genesis 2, 18, after uh, Adam is created and then Eve, and Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Genesis 2.18 says this. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Okay. Curious statement. Curiosity number one. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother. Adam and Eve had no father and mother. So, obviously, the scripture is talking not just about Adam and Eve, but about the institution of marriage. And when God brings two people together, they're supposed to leave father and mother, and they are to cleave to each other. Meaning that the most precious relationship that had existed to date The closest relationship is the parental relationship of father and mother to son and daughter. 
Now that relationship is to be replaced with the marital relationship. They are to leave father and mother. They are to cleave to each other. And they are to be one flesh. Now I don't have time to unpack all that this morning. But if you would follow your way through the scripture, you would see that the one flesh analogy is applied in three ways. Sexually, they shall be one flesh. Corinthians says uh, that uh, you shall not... uh, be involved with a harlot because you become one flesh. It has its sexual connotations. It has its uh, provision aspects of food and shelter, just as the law did. And then thirdly, it has the uh, intimacy aspects of how they are to cleave to each other. She is to be a helpmate to them. They are to be one. They are to be indissoluble. Indissoluble. Why do I say that? Because last week I was really hard on men. And I looked at men and said, you know, if you even look at a woman to lust in her heart, you have committed adultery. If you just looked at her and said, wow, that's great. You've committed adultery. And ladies, you may have thought you have gotten a pass. So this morning, I have something to say to you. And that is that we can have an intimacy that's not a sexual intimacy, but still is unfaithful to our spouse. I will have women say to me about men that they are extremely close to and say, we're just friends. We've never done anything, which means we haven't been engaged in a sexual act. But just as a man can be unfaithful to his spouse without entering into, a, uh, into an act, so too a wife can be unfaithful to her husband without entering into an act. If there's somebody at work that you just look forward to seeing every, 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 every day and your heart kind of skips a beat with anticipation of being with that person, and you look at them and you confide in them, and they become your best friend, and you tell them things you don't even tell your own husband, and you derive emotional support for them, and uh, you are encouraged and, and uh, you're strengthened and you're helped by this man, I submit to you that you're looking for qualities and you're looking for support that should be reserved for your spouse. Jesus taught intimacy is more than sexual in nature. What I want to say to you this morning is marriage is more than sexual fidelity. And that is brought down right to this very day into our culture. Again, a part of our Christian heritage. I want you to listen to the marital vows and I want you to listen to them in a new way. These are the traditional vows. To the husband. Do you solemnly promise before God and these witnesses to love Cherish, 
honor, protector, and her only, forsaking all others as long as you both shall live? If so, answer, I do. To the wife, do you promise to love, honor, cherish, submit to, protect him, to forsake all others and to cleave to him and him only so long as you both shall live? To the wife, do you take this man to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part? Husbands. And they say virtually the same thing. Somehow, somehow, we've lowered the standard. Somehow, I think, in modern-day evangelicalism, adultery ranks real high. But the loving, the cherishing, the providing for, richer for poor, sickness and health, remaining faithful to each other, that somehow has been diminished. And what I mean by that is husbands feel good about themselves as long as they haven't committed adultery. And wives feel good about themselves as long as they haven't committed adultery. And what Jesus is saying is wake up to the other responsibilities and realize that in any of these areas, in any of these areas, if you fall short You are not being a good husband. You are not being a good wife. Last week, I spoke about lust and I spoke about ways to overcome it. And what I was emphasizing is that lust is a matter of the heart. So someone said to me after the service, you know, there are other ways to overcome lust that you didn't address. And I said, yes, I know, because I was really trying to deal with the heart. But you know, one of those ways is the Corinthian says that uh, husband and wives are not to refrain from having sexual relationships for an extended period of time lest you fall into temptation. I I do think, and I I, I can't unpack this this morning, so take it at the level that it's meant to be presented I think there can be almost marital rape in which men brutally and unthoughtfully have a sexual relationship to their spouse. I'm not diminishing that. I think that's possible. On the other hand, it's possible for women to use sex as a weapon to get what they want and to punish their husbands. And sometimes it's used in a very unhealthy and unprofitable way. So let me just say to you this morning, wives, if your husband struggles with pornography, it isn't a good way to handle it by saying, I'm not going to have sex with you until you deal with this. That's only going to compound a problem. That's only going to make two wrongs that aren't going to make a right. 
All I'm saying to you is there are responsibilities and duties. And it's so hard to talk about these things publicly. Where I'd love to sit down and spend hours with you because there is a tendency among fallen human men is to try to use these statements to our own advantage. Rather than to see them as a wake-up call to how better meet the needs of my spouse, there's a tendency to pervert them just as the Pharisees did with the law and take what was intended to be a provision for a wife and turn it on its head to now provide a way out for a man to not provide for his wife. To make the law actually say exactly the opposite. And all I'm saying to you today is, you know, I think we've done that with marriage. And turn it on its head so that somehow we've ended up with only caring about adultery in a relationship. It's much more than that. Being faithful to my spouse is indeed providing for her and her for him. It is indeed protecting each other, including their honor, including their respect, including their testimony, including their dignity. It is meeting their needs in all areas, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And let's not get pharisaical and say, well then, Pastor, are you saying that all these things open up and legitimize divorce, et cetera, et cetera? It's not about divorce, people. It's about marriage. It's about staying in a relationship that God intends to be permanent till death do us part. But marriage is not to be a life sentence. It's to be a joyous union of two individuals. Jesus raises marriage to an incredibly high standard. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands, respect your husbands. Submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. That's the standard. That's what we're to be aspiring to. We're not to be looking for a way out. But we're striving to maintain a relationship that is truly unique. And at the bottom line, if you could sum it all up, it's about exclusivicity. Exclusivicity. As a husband, you have a relationship to this woman that is unlike your relationship to any other woman in any other realm. Not just sexually, in any realm. You are committed to your wife in a way in which you are not committed to any other person on the face of this earth. And wives, you are committed to your husband in ways in which you are not committed to any other man on the face of this earth. In all facets of life, 
because you've entered into a unique and precious relationship. Jesus describes it as a mystical union that God has brought you together. And what God has brought together, let no man put asunder. Jesus is teaching all of that. And two things. Removing the double standard and elevating responsibilities in all areas of life to issues of faithfulness. Faithfulness. What I want you to go away with this morning is we need to be increasingly more faithful to each other. A better husband, a better wife, meeting each other's needs in all facets, in all areas of life, being exclusively committed to each other in a way that reflects God's commitment to his people, his people's commitments to him, and honors and glorifies his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and I pray you would help us as husbands and wives uh, that we might be faithful to all of our vows, not just one, but in every area that we have expressed commitment, may that commitment be manifested. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to not desire another person's husband or another person's wife. Even as your word says that we should not covet another man's wife or another man's house or his goods. Lord, may we be not only dissatisfied with our spouse, but may we delight in them. May we be thankful for them. May we rejoice in your provision for us in the spouses that you have given to us. Oh Lord, may we see the blessing that you have given to us. And even as was mentioned this morning in the Beatitudes, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. O Lord, in the simplest and yet most profound ways, as we strive to be righteous husbands and wives, may we experience that blessed satisfaction. I'm reminded of that rock and roll Song. I can't get no satisfaction. Lord, in a marriage that honors and glorifies you, there's satisfaction. Oh Lord, help us to be satisfied in our spouses, to your honor and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.